Has your local footy club had a recent clangor or challenge? Well, Amy is here to help. The Amy Clangers for Good competition is back for 2024. This year, Amy are donating $10 for every clangor recorded during the AFL season with eight community clubs in the chance to win up to $15,000. If you want your club to go into the running in 100 words or less, tell us how Amy can help your club bounce back from a recent challenge. Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. This week on the Dylan Friends podcast, massive guest Craig Hutchie Hutchison. Wow, this is huge. Like, I, I honestly never thought I'd have the opportunity to sit down and chat with, with this guy. And um, it's honestly astonishing what he's been able to do in his career, starting out as a, a young journalist working for the, for the Herald Sun to owning SEN and owning one of the biggest companies really in Australia, the biggest sports networks in Australia. Um, it's seriously, seriously impressive what he's been able to do. But yeah, we unpacked it all, um, growing his, his media empire, um, you know, hosting all these radio stations and, and growing them all across Australia. And yeah, he's been a massive, I suppose, role model for me. Looking at now of what he's been able to do with his business has been nothing short of incredible, to be honest. We also touched on his journalism days and, and some of the things he learnt, cutting his teeth and, and trying to find and, and break stories and some of the highlights and I suppose lowlights and mistakes he made along the way that have, have really impacted him on his journey. But yeah, it's, it was pretty incredible to see like his mindset on work. Like I think after you listen to this, you'll understand why this guy is, is so successful. He's an absolute workhorse. It's like every single person we spoke to was just Hutchie's his work rate um, and, and running his business is really second to none. I think it's honestly just the beginning for him. He's already done so much, but fuck, I have no idea what's what's next. He's he's buying up things left, right and centre. Um, cannot thank him enough for his time sitting down on, on our pod and um, love it so much. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. In many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears. 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 Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How can this is so meditating? It's like, <laughs> they had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Craig Hutchison, welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast, my friend. It's an honor, it's a pleasure, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Hey Dylan, nice to see you and hear you. How are you? I'm very well, my friend. It's a it's a massive uh, treat to have you today, mate. It's a media mogul, a big associate hero of mine in this space now. Um, you know, trying to do some some podcasts and seeing where you've got to, especially with the research we've done and what you've done over the last ten years, mate. It's been unbelievable and so so pumped to uh, unpack it all today. That's not even remotely true, but thank you for the sentiment, Dylan. <laughs> look forward to having a chat, mate. I I don't know if you remember this, but I, I'm hoping you don't. But we actually met a few years ago um, at the Emerson, and I was there at Mitch. Duncan's Bucks party and you know I was so excited I wanted to go up and have a chat with you and I just realized probably at that time of the night um and and what I'd probably been drinking that day at a Bucks party wasn't the right time to come up and um have a a DM about work life um but you you're very nice and I appreciate that there's not too often that you hear the sentence I'm not sure you remember this, but I met you at the Emerson where it ends in the right <laughs> manner as a sentence, but that were, it was a long time ago. But now I remember you well and I've obviously followed you, your football career and been fully impressed with your, your foray into podcasting and uh, the way you've connected with young audiences. So oh, in turn, I'm actually humbled to be with you today, Dylan. Nice. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much. I'm excited to get into it. Mate, you've, uh, as I said, you've done it all. I think a lot of people, um, I know you as a journalist, I know you as the, the big dog at SEN, but I suppose the, the journey that got there, which has been what I'm most intrigued about too, um, is what I'd love to talk about today. It's It's been honestly phenomenal and you've, you've really set a, a massive standard for, for the Australian media. Um, where did it all start? You're a young kid from Warrigal. Um, how'd, you, how'd you get into journalism? Yeah, I feel like my story's not that interesting, but I'll, I'll do my best version to give it a version of it anyway. So yeah, I began young, Dylan. I was a 12-year-old working in the Warrior Gazette. My dad was very fortunate to be the columnist and he let me write under his name and I got some early exposure. So yeah, all through my teens, I wrote and I guess got involved in broadcasting a little bit and did everything from call the Warrigal trots to call the Warrigal dogs to write a column for the paper on footy and cricket and trots and races and so classic country kid that was involved in everything in sport and had a ball and yeah I think you know I always say to young people that if I give them any advice is start your passion early because when you, by the time you get to 18 you might not be exceptional in anything but at least you'll have done it for five or six years and the employers will factor that into their thinking. Is that true about you, your old man? There's a story that we read earlier that you, your dad was a, a working as a journalist and, and he would actually make uh, let you write the articles for a while under his name and you know the editors and whatnot didn't actually know this was happening but he was sort of giving you that real early insight into into writing um, articles. Yeah, my dad's name's Ken. He's a big part of the Warrigal community this day. He's very much a, a local town guy, loves the community. He was running the – I think he was running the – John Heenan's plumbing business as, a, as the office manager at the time, or he may have still been at Permuans where he was for 28 years as the general manager of the store. And yeah, he did it as a bit of a hobby because he loved, like my mum, my late mother did, like loved local sport and community. So he wrote the column as a hobby and he knew that's what I wanted to do. I was fortunate enough to know what I wanted to do at the age of six or seven. So he gave me a chance to write under his name for a year. And uh, I probably didn't ever realised how important that was for me in my journey until about 10 years ago where we did a, a video for one of our clients, Tobin Brothers Funerals, and I was able to tell him how how much it meant to me. So yeah, he's he's a pretty unique guy, my dad, Kenny. He's, ironically, Dylan, he's very uh, popular and loved and inoffensive, and many would say I'm the, quite the opposite. So it's been, I'm not sure how that works, but uh, he's, a, he's a ripper and a big part of the royal community this day. What were you like as a student, um, Hachi, studying journalism? Did you did you study the traditional route? Was it something you just did? Did you work? Did you fall into it? How did uh, your transition go to getting your first sort of cadetship? As a student, I'd say I was a bit lazy because I, because I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't focus on anything else. So yeah, I'd get good marks in English and not so good marks in everything else. I think you know it was a bit of a a bit of a um, double edged sword, really. Like I, I had a view of what I wanted to do, and so I didn't put a lot of time into things I didn't want to do. And that was a bit challenging because at the end of year 12, I didn't get a first round offer in university. So that was a confronting day when they, you know, you know those days, I'm not sure how it was in your era, Dylan, but in my day, I was like the old war story guy, the, the, the Herald Sun would have the results of the uni offers and you'd sit there and there'd be three pages of them. You'd be looking through for your name. And when it's not there, it's pretty confronting as a 17, nearly 18 year old in 1992 when you, when you thought that you were on a, on a journey to be, hopefully to be a journalist. So yeah, that was, that was confronting and I guess it probably set the tone from there really. Was there a turning point that, that kicked you into gear and, and made you realise that that you had to knuckle down and get to work because from everyone we've spoken to and this theme will come a lot today is, is your work ethic is, is you know second to none it's it's unparalleled it's it's nearly obsessive the way you know you work and, and the passion you put into things. As a cadet at the Herald Sun probably in 1994 when 
I was one of eight or nine cadets. I was the least equipped by a mile. Most of them had university degrees and most of them were very uh, considered intellectual. I was a, a country kid who was, you know, trying to find my way. And the then cadet counsellor, Kim Lockwood, called me in after about eight weeks and said, I don't think you're going to make it. You know, I, he, he said to me, um, and I've, I've mentioned this before in previous interviews, that uh, I'm off watching Lethal Weapon videos while they're studying <laughs> meaningfully at night. And so I knew that really all I had from there was my work ethic. And so the next day, I was he, just, he would get to work at 5.30 in the morning, which was abnormal to him. And so I'd try and get there at 5.15. I thought, if my journalistic dream is going to be over, at least I want to make sure the person who makes the decision has to walk past me at 20 past five in the morning and give myself the best chance. And then you get to work early and then you've got to find something to do to fill the time in. So I would hit the phones and try and find stories. And when the other cadets walked in at eight or nine o'clock, I'd had three hours ahead of them and I realized I could get published. And then just sort of that's how I kept going, really. Unbelievable. Yeah. So it's been a theme the whole time um, hearing that. Journalism, though, it's something, you know, I, I was on the other side of journalism for a long time. Not that people wrote about me. The only time it came up in articles was at the end of the year and they were saying this guy's getting delisted or not. How, how did you find it being a subject of journalism? Uh, look, it really didn't affect me much. And, and I, one, it wasn't, I wasn't really written about. But two, I actually understood that when you're in the sporting eye and you're getting paid money, um, things are going to be written about you. Um, whether that's, you like it or not, I think the big thing for me was when media happens, are they talking about the person or are they talking about the actions of that person? So that was probably the biggest thing that I go forward and when I look at journalism now and when I do podcasting, and I suppose a part of my show is trying to uncover the person, find out who they are, not what the persona is. Um, but that's been a big part for me, I think. Yeah, I think as a subject, people take it very seriously. Right? Fundamentally, people don't like being talked about unless it's positive, and that's just human nature. That That is entwined with journalism as an act. And so, you know, I, I personally, I, I think my people might tell me otherwise, I don't really care what people think unless you unless you really respect them. Like if my dad rang me and said, you're making a pickle of yourself, I'd sit back and go, okay, fair enough. That's that's feedback I want to take on. But I don't, I don't really get caught too much in what other people think. And that's, I've always probably been a bit polarizing. And I suppose as a player, you're probably a bit the same, right? So you're your own man. And you, as you go into your own journey in podcasting, you've done your own thing and good on you. Yeah, I, I don't think I do as well with criticism as I'd like, though. I think it's still a big part of me that I'd have to, to build. Um, and I think in this day and age, like you, everyone is pressed for an opinion. And if you don't have an opinion, you seem to have been this person. But I suppose I'm trying to break the mold a bit. Like, I talk about things I like and I don't talk about things I don't like. I don't feel the need that everyone has to have an opinion on everything. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't really mean it. That's when you get yourself into trouble. Dennis Pagan used to say, listen, son, if you start arguing with fools, pretty soon people won't tell the difference. Yeah, no, I, I'm very quick to, to just agree with people and, and let them have their time. Early days journalism, though, you – and this is every journalist. There is a part of that that gives me massive anxiety. Like, you, you are really trying to undercover stories that people might not want to hear, they don't want to hear. With that's got to come a lot of tension, I suppose, trying to break stories. Um, do you remember your first big story that you broke? Yeah, I do. And I, I guess I have an uneasy relationship with journalism these days because it's, you know, it's shaped – our business and my life. So it's been such a great thing for me over the journey, but I don't, I don't, and I, and I sound like the guy that tells the old war stories these days and I hang the boots up about a decade ago, but I'm not, I'm not certain what my view is on certain acts or parts of it that got me here in the first place, you know? So it's a, it's a little interesting conundrum for me. Yeah. My first story was, um, well, the thing that helped me was a, my first back page league. I think as a young 
Herald Sun journalist, you want to be on the back page or the front page. And if you're in the sport division, you want to be on the back more than the front, or you hope the sports story is big enough to be on the back and the front. So there was probably a lot of things along the way, but a simple little story of a bunch of St Kilda players getting injured on a Friday night in an intra-club game where no one else was there and we had the exclusive story and the interview with Stan Elves, the coach, and I wasn't, I was in the cadet uh, group at the time, so I wasn't meant to be writing sports. So that's the one that springs to mind when you say that, but yeah, I'm not sure what the exact kind of first story was or, or whatever. My first um, published story, I think, at the Herald Sun was on Lee Colbert as a feature story on the young kid at Geelong and... We've maintained a relationship ever since, which has been the best part of 30 years, and it's great to see him doing great things in McDonald's in Mildura. But, yeah, they're the, probably the two that spring to mind. Has there ever been, you know, stories, and I know that you're not a journalist these days, but back in the day, it's really interesting your point that you bring up that a lot of the things you might not agree with, uh, you know, these days, being in the position you are. But is there any stories that you know, you've been through that stick out in mind where you go, fuck, maybe going back now could I have done that different did it affect a relationship that you'd had or is that just what you got to do you're there to report the news and and you have to you know do your job yeah the one that my biggest mistake in life was the St Kilda uh, sexual misconduct investigation where I broke the story but had one of the two uh, accusers wrong and that was as big a mistake as you can make in journalism that was the one that um, you look back on and regret significantly and took me a long time to come to terms with that mistake and you know there was a path to that story where because it was my job to do the story and it it wasn't a great part of you know reporting on people's lives that you want to do but it was a very real thing at the time and got got one of the names wrong so I caused some discomfort to that that particular person and I didn't probably need to name the two accusers Dylan in the story there's an argument of course that you're incriminating the other 38 players if you don't name the two but you know that story could have been told without actually naming the players players involved I thought I was right I had three sources I'd you know had read to me the affidavit of the search warrant of the house and all those things but it turned out the person who owned the house wasn't one of the two accused so it was a fairly big mistake if I had my time again I would have handled that very differently I, I think journalism is a fairly in imperfect science so you make a lot of you can make a lot of mistakes along the way there's no doubt about that what's what's your relationship with the 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 public like when you're a journalist you think and and journalists these days you know we spoke to to sam mcclure a while ago on the pod and and he had some incredible insights into into the public it's you know the public want news they want news they love news and they love hearing about it but then when you give it to them they instantly don't like the news and they don't like the journalists it's 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 sort of you know they want the news but they don't want it from someone that's entirely true, and I guess that's just human nature. But and we're all victims of that. We all denounce something we read in the paper, but we all click on the website to read it in the first place. We have a podcast that we make called "Don't Shoot the Messenger," which is Caroline Wilson's favourite saying, and one that we've turned into a podcast. But that is entirely true when it comes to journalism. You, you really deal with debit points rather than credit points in the journalistic eye. If you're breaking stories, you're going to upset people, and that's just life. And so, yeah, it's the public view of a journalist is somewhere between a dodgy lawyer and a used car salesman when you're in the news business. It's very hard to rise above that. And if you do, and you do lots of things, I th- all journalists do lots of things that protect people, but because of that very nature, that's never known. So you're only judged on the things that hurt people. Yeah. And it's not until you're a columnist or a feature writer where people might pay you great acclaim or respect because you've told positive stories or you've delved deep into things that have meaning. And there's only a few, a small percentage of journalists that get to do that in the first place, whereas a lot of people cutting their teeth have got to break news stories. And again, you're only seeing a portion of what they know 
and the things that they've turned a blind eye to, protected or overlooked or cut a deal on, you don't know. So you don't understand the the emotional, the human side of that from behind. So yeah, journalists, I think journalists get a broad deal at um, most probably, but with that said, they do make a lot of mistakes too. So it's a, it's a tough one. In your eyes now, going back to when you're a journo, if you look at it now in this modern this modern day, you know, 2021, 2022, would you say it's similar to that? Would you say it's harder to become a journo now? Um, would you want to be going back and, and trying to find stories? Is it, is it just so overrun now that there's stats all the time saying there's two or three journalists to, to each player in the AFL? Yeah, I think, well, there's probably a couple of parts to that. These days you compete with the recipients. That didn't really happen in my day. So these days if I had a story, say I was a young journalist right now, I had a story about Hawthorne. If Hawthorne know I have the story, they're more inclined to publish it themselves and benefit from their from the news on their own platforms. So you're almost gun shy to share what you know with the recipient because often the recipient is a competitor. All eighteen clubs have got a dot com, the AFL have got a dot com. You're you're almost the ability to delve deep into a story is tougher because everyone's a publisher. So that I would find that hard. I reckon that'd be really tough for the the young brigade coming through. Um, equally, a good story is a good story, and these days you can um, you can magnify it more, or you can the cross platform nature of a story. I think the world of Twitter is Twitter's been an unbelievable news product, and the cycle just moves so quickly. And I, and I think there's a lot of people that live in a fairly safe place in journalism these days. Not a lot of people take chances. So the Sam McClure, who you spoke about before, he's one of those who takes great chances and actually you know, breaks stories and has has some flair about his his newsmanship. And you, know, you can become, you can stand out a bit more these days because there's not as many people who are having a real genuine go at being different. But you do, you can, if you live near the cliff occasionally, you can fall off from time to time. Yeah, no, you can. And you're right about Sam. He's doing incredible things. Uh, mate, you, you're talking about earlier about writing stories and doing your, your research and at a young age. And I suppose when you're working on a story, I can imagine these take so long to do. You, you're investing in this in months. You've got your scoop. You want to go and get it. You're investing into it. How do you know someone else isn't actually working on that story the same time as you? Do you know someone else isn't working on the same story at the same time as you? And are you, do you want to get all the research done or are you trying to be there to be first? You know, I always used to think of it like an hourglass. Like the minute you found out about something, sand starts falling out of that process and there's the opportunity for someone else to do it before you. There's nothing – every journalist in the world would tell you the same thing, Dylan. There's nothing worse than knowing something and being beaten to it when you knew it because you weren't nimble enough to get to the line in the first place. So I think time – from the second you, you learn something that you believe is true, time becomes a thing. In those days – I'm, again, telling war stories here, but – in those days, you had to wait to the place you could publish, which in my instance was the evening news or previous to that, the next day's paper, whereas now it's about by the minute on digital and social and those environments. So anytime more than, say, four or five people know about something, there's a fairly reasonable chance it gets out. You know, the more people that know, the pass-to-parcel nature of news is enormous. So I always think, how many people would know this? And the answer is three okay, you're pretty safe. If the answer's 33, and they come from different businesses, like it was, to give an example, it was shared at a room or a meeting or a conference. You know, the CEOs were briefed on this. Time is of the essence. You must move. Huge. Yeah, it's. I can imagine it being race to the first. 
Um, Hachi, I've heard you in, in a couple of interviews speak about this, so hopefully you can tell us the story today. But your relationship with Jared Waitley, obviously a massive impact on, on you and your career. I've heard a story about you guys back um, in the day um, working together and, and your relationship was frayed for a, a few years there after it. Are you happy to tell us that story? Yeah. I've probably told it too many times. He's probably sick of me telling it. So I don't want to back <laughs> over it necessarily too much other than to say we had a we had a we saw things a little bit differently on a day when we were competing on seven versus 10 in the day. And, you know, I probably manipulated the situation a little bit to my advantage and being a competitor and and uh, he didn't understand that we loved it at the time and we didn't speak as often. He was he was always courteous and friendly, but, you know, obviously it was it affected our close friendship at the time because I'd taken advantage of a situation and I think we both would have, or certainly I would have handled it a little bit differently. In, in Well, I say that. I, I, the competitor in me at the time probably makes that decision, um, most of that decision the same way, but it depends what day you get me, I guess. Like it was a, a moment where you had an opportunity to break a story and to capitalise on a situation. So I didn't tell a lie on the day, but I didn't certainly didn't reveal the truth. He is exceptional at what he does. I um, feel so fortunate to work with him. We've been able to uh, reconnect years later and um, yeah, we've built a, I think we've built a great partnership from a radio perspective. He does an incredible job at fronting our network. His program is superb, but just the way and the manner he and his wife Claire are towards our business and the way that they represent our company from a public market sense is, is superb. And yeah, I, I think he's it's exceptional what he does. He's he's very considered, he's smart, he works hard. Yeah, you know, we couldn't be happy with the job he's doing. And that was a long time ago in a bygone era. Appreciate you opening up, mate. I know it's uh, it's hard to bring, open up old wounds. When did Hachi go from journalist to businessman? This is what I'm most excited about because in the industry now, I know how hard it is, um, and and can't imagine you know doing what you've done. Was there a pivotal moment where you thought, "Fuck, I'm going to change my my tune here and actually start the business myself"? Yeah, it was probably around 2005. So I was 30 or 31 had gone pretty hard at things for the most of my twenties. I was a bit crash or crash through and I was spent and had, was it, had itchy feet and went to America and uh, I guess started doing radio crosses from there and syndicating in a, in a weird way, kind of half syndicating myself back to stations in Australia to talk about American sport and then having to find a sponsor and not a, not a dissimilar journey to the one you've been on and creating your own content and finding your own partners and, and those type of things. And so, that was where it kind of began as a, as an idea, and then I met a guy called James Swanick, who's same age as me. He was an LA based Australian, great friend. He was in the celebrity journalism game, and he was similarly at the same point. He's stale. He wanted to do something different, and so we were sharing our frustrations to each other, I guess, over his uh, barbecue and uh, backyard basketball ring in Los Angeles at the time, where I was partially living and partially living in New York, and we came up with an idea to start a business together. And so that some of the you know parts of our world that we were doing, my radio crosses, his stories to the UK on journalism, came into the business and we started working what our offering was, I guess, and that's where it began. And that's where it's continued to be since. What was the vision? I, I, I find it hard to believe that you could have visioned exactly what you've done now as it played out further than what you thought it would be? What was the initial vision of what you, you thought the Croc Media would be at that stage? Well, our first two products were 
public relations for Australian companies in America, and that was I wouldn't have thought that was a great success. And the second part was we're back in <laughs> PR now, but it's taken a fair circle to get back here. And the second part was television distribution. So finding TV distribution for Australian product outside of Australia. And I think Rex Hunt's fishing series was one of those products that we took on early. And we had a, a little run where we, we owned the National Lacrosse League rights around the world. And But again, that wasn't a great success either. And it wasn't until the third product, which was radio and radio syndication, where we found a little bit of a niche for ourselves regionally. We began in four towns in regional Victoria and we grew. And now we're heard on 291 frequencies in Australia and 28 in New Zealand, and we own 40 or 50, 50 radio stations, I guess call it, in terms of frequency. So, yeah, it's been a 15-year run to then. I think what you find in business, and many people who've in the startup game, and you'd have a lot of startup people following your product, Dylan, because you have high appeal in that sector, is your fear just drives you. You're in survival mode early. You test and learn all the time. And and sometimes your clients end up pushing you into areas that, uh, like, ultimately as a business person, you're there to solve your clients' problems. And ultimately, your clients sometimes have problems that are outside your skill strength. So you need to go and hire people or find ways to solve those problems. And so we're not dissimilar to anyone else. We've ended up in the areas that I probably wasn't an expert in because our clients along the journey have asked us to help solve a problem in those areas. And we've been able to kind of skill up and find people that could. You, you just alluded to it then, but you know, obviously SEN is is an absolute powerhouse in Australia and New Zealand now. But I can imagine it wouldn't have all been smooth sailing. Like, was there times where you were just like, "Fuck this! Like, this is too hard to do. Like, it, it just it can't be done." No, I was never never defeatist, but it got really challenging at times. Like, we had there's periods of business life where you you've, you've got to figure out and find a way when it doesn't seem like there is one. It took us 11 years to own a radio station, so it was a long time. Like radio is only one of, we're in about 12 different products. Radio is one of the 12, but it took us 11 years to own our first station, which was 11, 16 SEN. So that was a fairly big journey to, as a supplier to become an owner of a station. And so, yeah, it was, it was hard. Like there, there were times when you thought, what's the next step and where's the path? But we were equally very lucky. We had always had very talented people that worked with us and we always had great clients. And, you know, there were, there were good days and bad days, but... I, you know, I never kind of lost sight that we, there was a, a future for us if we worked hard enough. And ultimately, if you work hard in life, you you can pick your own path. Like the hard work is the panacea to most problems. How did the, the vision come though? Like, again, you're a journalist at this stage. You, you're 30, you've come a long way, obviously. But the business now, was that just learn on the go? Did you have some incredible mentors along the way that were able to help you? Or did you literally just go head first and, and think about it later? Bite off more than you can chew, Dylan, and chew like crazy. And that was kind of our philosophy at the time. And yeah, I, I just feel like looking back, it's, and I don't, this, I, I've always felt uncomfortable in these interviews because it sounds like you've achieved something. I don't feel like we've achieved anything yet. But looking back, I was very fortunate. There's some great people on the way who are still with us who have helped enormously in our team. And, you know, as you get a bit bigger, it gets a bit easier to find talented people. When you're younger, it's hard to attract talent to your business because, they're looking at you going, is this business going to work? And, you know, are we going to be any good? And so, like, it's not, you know, it's it's not easy. But if, as Dennis Pagan again used to say, Dylan, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. So you got to find a way to outwork people and that's all we've kind of ever done as a team, I think. Would it be fair to say that, you know, just from this short chat now, and this is obviously a compliment, but 
it feels like you're addicted to like that hard work and addicted to the drive. There's worse addictions to have than being addicted to your business. Most addictions are negative. Some people would say I'm a little too addicted to the detail in our business, but it, it's, you know, it's it means something every day. Like it's it's a privilege, but not a right to be in a business like ours where you can produce content every day, you can entertain people, you can drive scale into your clients, and you can help solve their problems from a marketing sense. Now that's that's a privilege, not a right. It, no, no one's to say it's going to be there tomorrow, the next week, or next year. And equally, you've got to adapt as like media has moved and changed significantly. So you have to move and change with it and often ahead of it because we are a client led business and you need to be able to solve clients' challenges and you need to be able to be where the people are. So it's that's addictive because you need to be. If you take your eye off it, it is it's something you can't take your eye off for a minute. It's a seven day a week business. It's not a, it's not easy and it's not plausible to have a day off even if you wanted to. So you know, that that's fun. It's 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 great. There's days where you love it more than others, but you know, it's a great it's a great privilege. Staying on top of things as well, you just said then that like, you got to stay ahead of the curve. Um, and forgive me, I don't know how this works, but is this like why SEM would be buying up media assets? Is that why you're sort of moving into to New Zealand? You've got SEN um, South Australia. Uh, you've got the footy record. You're with the Perth Wildcats. Like, are these decisions to, you know, help the future? Is that what it is, basically? Yeah, and also that we're a public business now. So three and a half years ago, we became a public market. If for anyone listening out there, you can you can have a look at our stock. We're unbelievably great value at twenty five or six cents today. That's a, that's the same price we were at the time we went in, and yet we've done so much and we've scaled so much. So, you know, from a public markets perspective, I think we're an incredible opportunity. Uh, we trade under SEG on the stock stock market, and you can download the SEN app if you haven't heard any of our content. You get a different experience in every part of the country, both Australia and New Zealand. It's tailored to your area, but yeah. I, it's not my money. It's public money. It's, I'm one of the shareholders, and but there are a lot of people who are shareholders of the business who would expect their CEO to drive the business forward, to grow it, to scale it, and to and to and to be um, a meaningful and tangible business for the for the years to go. Our our turnover is you know circa three or four times what it was when we began the merger journey, and I, I think and I think we're you know an unbelievably solid business now for. A, well positioned for a long run at things in the future. But if I was a shareholder in our business and wasn't working in it, I'd be expecting that too of the leader of it. So I understand it from that point of view. Being as big as you've got, and, and just mentioning it then, it's it's phenomenal. You've done an incredible job. But something that I think you have to be able to do to be um, a boss and, and get as big as you have is you've got to you know step on people's toes. You've got to make – you've got to disrupt the market really. Um, how how hard was that for you, or was it easy building a big business? Did people, you know, other competitors um, be scared of what you were doing? Was it something that ever crossed your mind when you were building the business? Did you worry about what other people were thinking? Well, I didn't really for the first decade because we were off building something regionally, ostensibly. We began in regional Australia and we grew back into the cities, which makes us a little bit abnormal. Most businesses see regional as a secondary market. For us, it was it was core. And no one was really out doing it regionally. So it didn't feel like we were in anyone's way. As we grew a bit, perhaps others thought that of us, but for a long time they didn't. And for, and it, for a long time it was under the radar a little bit of you know, um, um, a capital city market. So we've always just done, we don't see ourselves as having any competitors. We supply most people and we have 
lots of kind of intricate relationships that are not always clear from the outside. But we, we don't view ourselves as having any competitors. Others would potentially think that of us, but we, on, on, hand on heart, we just get up and try our best to solve problems. And if we can solve the problem ourselves, we will. If we need to work with someone else to solve a brand's problems, we will. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll strike deals with external companies all the time. So that's, and then from the hard nose point of view, I think you, you need to be able to make strong decisions. That's not perhaps natural in me growing up, but I think I've got better at it. Like if you if you need to make a hard call, you got to make it. It's not personal. One of the weird things about media, Dylan, is that it's a very emotional business because if you're an accountant or a lawyer, potentially. What you do on a Monday at three o'clock isn't necessarily debated the next morning over the breakfast table or at dinner that night. Whereas if you make a hard talent call or a content call, everyone's got an opinion on it and some people agree and some people disagree, but there's, there's a running commentary on it. And I think footy clubs go through the same thing. You would have done that and experienced that in your time at Carlton and the Giants. So yeah, so it's, that is the job. The, the seat requires you to make hard calls and and you know, hopefully I got a little bit better at it over the time, but I haven't, I haven't always made the perfect call all the time and the right call and... And it's very subjective. If we if we named ten content shows or talent right now, we'd have different views on it ourselves, and so would the people listening. That's a subjective business. Yeah, I can't imagine those big calls and, and making massive calls. Uh, as you said in the media, everyone's going to always have an opinion on things, which makes it hard, and that's why the media is the media. Um, the sports media in the future, in the near future, you were just mentioning before, you've always got to be ahead of the curve. What does it look like to you? Um, and do you actually pay notice much of digital media, like new media, like YouTubing, um, yep. podcasting, uh, TikTok, Instagram, socials? Is that something that you guys look into at SEN or are you more focusing on the on the commercial media that's a lot bigger? 100%, yeah. So our digital focus has been huge. We've got an in-house product team of 15, call it, of just actually product um, men and women who focus on distribution and innovation. And that's been an agenda that we've tried to run for the last Several years, we've got between six and 10 of the top 100 podcasts made in Australia, depending on the month. You know, I think in sport, we've got the lion's share of that, of that market, and we coexist against many great podcasts. And um, Digital video is a business where I think the attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. You've got to be in snackable content. You've got to be in short-form content. You know, we, we're circa 10, 12 million video views a month as a business, and it's all 60 second, 90 seconds. We have a YouTube channel, which is a little bit longer. It's probably six minutes rather than 90 seconds. Um, you know, obviously, Snapchat and TikTok have been transformative products and appeal to younger generations. YouTube kids live on. So you've got to be, you've got to try and be in everything, don't you? And you've got to try and build your brand through all those areas and have products that appeal to them all. But equally, traditional media has, has clearly been where we've been able to grow. And, you know, regionally and even AM licenses, we've been able to make something of for different uh, communities and sectors around regional Australia in particular. So, yeah, I'm always looking. I'm not an expert on anything, but test and learn is a, is a great way to, to try things and sometimes you just got to try things. What's the biggest growth area you think in the media in general? Is it is it these new age medias or is it actually nailing what's already there? Um, personally, I feel like at the moment we've never, you know, consumed more content in our lives. Um, COVID, it's probably the only industry that's really dominated so much from actually having um, news and sport and podcasting and videos just access to 24-7? They're not mutually exclusive. Like I think you've got to be able to distribute your content in many ways and you've got to be able to connect with people in 
all walks of life. You know, our aspirations, someone wakes up on a Saturday morning, consumes us in five different ways before they get to the ground and then consumes at the ground in five different ways. Now that's, we want to be part of the content funnel for a sports fan. And I think, you know, the, the melting pot of humour, irreverence, pop culture, sport, even adjacencies like, you know, politics and, um, you know, modern day life, they're all, there's a melting pot going on there that's, you know, driving consumption to the left, which is a bit more ir- irreverent. And that extends out to memes and gifs and whatever else you want to call it and a clever ways to launch a fixture and cats howling and everything in between. And then <laughs> over the right, opinion is always going to be a, a big product. And I've been big on opinionists and their ability to cut through over the journey and you know, having a strong opinion. If you look at global opinionists like Stephen A. Smith and others, they've got such huge currency because of the way they distribute their content. And often they're as um, well known as the subjects they're talking about. So they're the, and then the third part is the linear experience, which is the live event and how it's broadcast. I find that really interesting. We've had radio rights and television rights in many things, but then you know, experiences where you haven't got rights, but you're part of the companion process. SEN Track is a good example of that. If those of your audience who haven't consumed it can go to our SEN app and click on one of our 15 SEN Track stations and it doesn't have racing rights, but it is a companion to the fan while they experience it as another, like most of our listeners have got Sky or Racing.com or their phone on at the same time watching the race and they sound down listening to us. So, you know, it's, you've got to be part of every area of media to be part of the solution, I think. For the fan, and then you've got to be able to connect a brand to it in a meaningful way. Stephen A. Smith, you just mentioned then about that US factor, and obviously you're a big fan of the US. You love getting over there. Is that something that you feel that obviously SEN is is doing exactly that, and it does it really like no one else in Australia? How far off do you think we are to to being on par with the US in terms of our sports coverage? Well, probably never. We don't have the scale, so they're twenty times the size, and we don't have the volume of sports that are relevant. You know, NBA is every day you know, NFL's seasonal but highly popular you know baseball play every day so like it's and college is huge so yeah we'll we'll never get to that level of fanaticism but what it what I find it does Dylan is it sparks great thinking there's so much energy around sport in America and fanaticism and the way the content's consumed and I find it quite liberating and uh, creatively uh, stimulating that when you're there because it's not the idea that you think you can pinch. It's just the thought bubble that you see and you say, oh, that won't work in Australia, but hey, maybe a version of that might or that reminds me I should try this. Or you know, I find it quite, particularly places like New York and LA and Chicago, they're quite st- stimulating places to experience sport. And you can come home and have 15 ideas and maybe one of them works and 14 doesn't. But I think I've missed most about the last 18 months or two years is, is that is not being able to be in America and, you know, try things. Was this part of the decision as well to, to expand into New Zealand? What was behind that? Well, I think I've always been looking for a way in. Like it's 5 billion people. It's 25% of the Australian population. It's a sport-loving nation. I would argue they're even more parochial about their sport than Australians are and their national teams in particular. And then there was a gap there. There was a market that hadn't probably been nourished in being given enough sport and – you know, enough places, there's no, there was no 24-7 sport on the radio. So 
SENZ was a dream of ours and something we wanted to do. We're very proud of it. It's early days. You can get on your on your SEN app and download and have a listen to the channels. There's 28 stations. You know, but we've opened offices early days in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and Dunedin, and it's a build, but it's a lot of fun. And then, and equally, we get to work with very talented people: Brendan McCullum, Israel Dag, Kirsty Stanway, Ian Smith, Mark Stafford, Stephen Donald, uh, Grant Elliott, a whole lot more. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun early, Dylan. Now, Craig, hopefully you've uh, you agree with me on this. I think it is, but in the US, a lot they do um, a lot of live streaming. So Joe Rogan does a lot. They stream themselves watching the UFC, stream themselves watching the soccer, the football, whatever it is. Um, is that something you could see coming to Australia soon? And it gives you know people so much more aspects and so much more content to be able to consume their footy at the moment. Like you said, there's radio, there's TV, but these other facets that you're looking at, there there isn't a lot at the moment. Yeah, there's. I mean, streaming's uh, enormous here already. Like, it's, it's probably overpopulated already early days. It's a technology that everyone's embraced and, and new. But yeah, like, the, you know, Gogglebox did it in from a television sense, right? There's people, that was, a, you know, a bit ironic for me because I was hosting the footy show and being outrated a little bit at the time by <laughs> Gogglebox, which was people watching the television as opposed to being on it yourself. So there's, voyeurism is a thing. Streaming lends itself to that. That will continue to grow. You've got an, an element of your audience that are, that are voyeuristic in, in your podcast. And, yeah, so I think streaming's, you know, it's, it's going to be an, a, an arms race. To, there won't be as many left on the dance floor at the end as there is now. But, you know, the global streaming and then watching people watch sports going to be, you know, I think there's something really interesting in that. People, I think, I, my, my belief is that people want to feel part of a community. Yeah. And so, you know, they want to feel like they're, part of a club, you know, that if they're watching sport together or they're watching someone they all respect watch sport or somewhere in between. And that's, you know, that's the secret sauce. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. It's it's what we've found with, with podcasting and radio. Um, I know, you know, you'd know that, but being a part of something is what, what everyone earns for. Lastly, just on yourself, back to your work ethic. Now, I know it's unparalleled. I know you love it, but is there a way that you find balance in life? Like, what is it? Do, can you pull yourself away? How does Hutchie take time for himself? Um, is there something you do to get away from from work or is it something you're still working on? Because I know that's something that I'm still working on personally myself. Most people who know me say I'm very, very poor at it. So that's a, that's a continual challenge, Dylan. I think, um, you know, I was, clearly in the last few years I've settled down. I've got a partner, Claire. I've got two stepkids, Nicholas and Ava. That's been pretty cool. And Nicholas and I are very tight in particular, an 11-year-old who loves his basketball and sport and we hang out and, you know, Claire's, Claire's been a, a great influence. And then I guess historically travel was my my exit. But I, I think if you're in business and you, you try and make your work your life and your life your work and, you know, pretty soon you've got one integrated life where they're, they're not different. I don't think, I don't personally, I'm not craving switching off or, uh, you can't even if you try to, but it's, different versions of integrating your family or your travel into your experience. Yep. No, I agree. I, I think when you work and you, you're working hard, you, you enjoy it. But for me as well, fuck, I need to switch off sometimes. It's It gets too much. Um, is it true though, Kachi, you don't drive anymore because you, you do <laughs> get so uh, in, intertwined in your work that you, you honestly forget that you're driving most places and you leave your car um, everywhere. Now, we've had a mutual friend here that said that she's had to bail your car out that many times from places because you've been so switched on with work that you've just left it at the airport. 
A big cheerio to Janine. He would have told you that my <laughs> uh, former colleague and one-time EA from a long time ago. But yeah, no, I, yeah. I, when Uber came to Australia, I was out. I was the first one to sign up. I'd experienced it in America, and I always found driving for me. I was always trying to <laughs> do two things at once and concentrate on the phone call I was on or the the job I had. And so, yeah, I I um I decided to, to be an Uber guy a long time ago, and that's worked out pretty well. What's next for you, Hutchie? Um, it seems like you've done so much, but I, I can't imagine you wanting to slow down anytime soon. What's the, the big goals you've got planned? We've got a lot, lot of work left to do, Dylan. So we've got so many radio licenses that we haven't yet you know, really grown into or fully. Um, there's a lot of blue sky in our radio business. There's a lot of blue sky in our television business. Our event business is growing. Our TV um, business, I mentioned, is growing. Our talent business is growing. You know, Our recent acquisition of the Wildcats is Got a lot of work to do. So I feel like the next three to six months are about a harvest and try and consolidate and try and focus on those new areas. And then, you know, we'll look at what's next. But, you know, we clearly want to build a scalable business from a sport perspective, which, you know, is a full solution for fans and a full solution for brands. And that'll continue to be the focus. Which one are you most excited about? I, I love all the things we do. Like it's everything's a challenge. We haven't really ever been in areas where we've been. The Wildcats is the first thing I can think of in a long time where we've inherited something that's already wildly successful and very popular, and our job is to enhance it. We've been builders and have gone about trying to build things ground up and be part of a journey and win an audience over. And Yeah, so like whether it be New Zealand, Perth, Southern Queensland and the challenge there, Sydney and how to make 1170 bigger and bolder and more socially relevant or everywhere in between, I, I get excited about the regional towns we're going into, whether it be... Mildura or Warrigal or uh, Gosford or Wollongong and the offices we've opened in Bunbury and yeah so it's all fun like it, you wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun you're, you, the word you used before was addictive and I think you're right you know it's a it's a hopefully a healthy addiction but we do want to be relevant in every town we do business in and so you know I'm as interested in Wellington as I am in Kalgoorlie and everywhere in between. Just on that with the, with the Wildcats, acquiring a team is is very impressive and it's it's huge. But in the AFL, we don't see it because obviously the AFL owns all the teams. Do you ever see the fact that we could maybe have a a, a way that um, AFL teams are privately owned one day in the future? Do you see that happening? Yeah, I think it'll work, and it'll work particularly in the development markets because it'll be someone else's risk and someone else's energy. And you know, that you get there's an argument. I don't know if it's a valid one or not that people that owned a development team would put more time, effort, energy into it than the league would themselves, right? Because it's, it's bigger risk and bigger reward and bigger investment. So yeah, I'm a believer in it. I think it would work in places like Tasmania and the Northern Territory and New Zealand from an AFL perspective. And, you know, I think we'll see, you know, it's worked in the NRL. I think we'll see more and more, you know, the, the private ownership wins around sport are huge. It, it's, it's everywhere. So, you know, our experience with, Melbourne United as a minor shareholder and, and the Wildcats as a 100% owner has been a tremendous one. And you know, sports we will keep looking at unquestionably you know, in teams if there's opportunities to be relevant in communities. Hutchie, mate, it's been unbelievable. Uh, I can't imagine, uh, believe how much we've we've just covered, mate. I'm sure uh, everyone's a smarter person for listening to that one today. Cannot thank you enough for your time. You've uh, you've done some incredible things, and um, yeah, it's really exciting and honoured to have a chat, mate. Yeah, in all in all honesty, you've been a really big impact on, on me and what we're trying to do here. So, congratulations, and, and hopefully we can catch up soon. I'd love to buy a beer. Uh, Dylan, well done on everything you're building with Dylan Friends. It's been an incredible journey for you. You've done an amazing job of winning people over. Your authenticity shines through 
you know, clearly a great character and you've got a great team around you with all the, 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 the great people you've been able to assemble to, to make the band work together. And yeah, I, I just love seeing the progress you're making and I'm very humble that you'll have, have me on your program and thanks for the opportunity and don't forget to download and listen to the SEN app. <laughs> we love it. Hey, <laughs> by the way, just quickly, Hachi, you said off air that you were the actual real creator of the list clogger term. Can you quickly fill us in on that? Because that's I obviously can. one of our other shows. And are you going to be taking legal action on us? Uh, it's already in the hands of my lawyers and doing, uh, <laughs> the equally untalented Daniel Goringer in my sights. So, and I'm only joking. The Monday morning footy classified we had, it was my outlet uh, for years. We had a production meeting at 10 o'clock and we'd all bounce in and it was an hour where you could talk about the footy and in a, in a normally busy, my, my Mondays are 15, 16 hours, sort of 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. So that was the hour where I'd vent a little bit and you talk about footy and we'd always try and come up with a term that stuck. <laughs> it was a bit of a private joke with Gary Lyon and I and we'd introduce a term to the program and see if it stuck. And, you know, we were talking about those players on lists that get a game because they're good enough to play, but they, hint, they hinder your progress because you can't, they take 22 games off someone who might end up being an A grader and they're a B or a B minus or a C plus. And they almost, I said, oh, like, I made reference, they clog your list. They're, they're good enough to play, but they clog the list. And so we came up with the term list cloggers and we mentioned it <laughs> ad nauseum on the show. And we were generally hoping it would catch on. <laughs> so it was like one Look of those that. private jokes where you go, oh, is this a word where it could, could stick? And we used it for a couple of weeks in a row and then, Lo and behold, you've got a podcast called List Cloggers. So quite funny. Appreciate it. You've done some good things, even given us a name. Mate, to finish up, is there any advice you'd give give um, Dylan friends and List Cloggers in the future? You've been there, you've done it. What would you what would you say to some up and comers that are, are trying to take it over? I'm no expert. I just keep doing what you're doing. Take some risks, take some chances, be authentic with your audience and and work hard. The harder you work, the luckier you get. Love it, mate. Thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Really appreciate it. And uh, anything, anytime we can return the favour, we'd love to do so. Uh, Dylan, you'll be hearing from my lawyers. Thank you. <laughs> if that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Listener.